Our text of scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 5. Please listen as I read and follow along in your copy of the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah, three, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lord, as we come before you this morning opening your word, we believe what you say, that every word of scripture is inspired. It is breathed out. By God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and mature, equipped for every good work. Lord, we come in faith this morning and we ask that you would equip us, that you would mature us, that you would reprove and rebuke and instruct so that we might become more like Christ, so that we might bring you glory. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So my kids aren't here this morning, they're staying with my parents, but in thinking about them and thinking about this text, you know, it comes to mind that my kids love geodes. How many, of you, how many of you kids know what a geode is? Have you seen one of those before, right? You love geodes. My kids love geodes. 
Now, if you were not trained like me, you could walk outside, walk through a field and see a rock and think it's nothing but a rock. But somebody who's trained, somebody maybe like Mrs. Moneymaker, who's a geologist, would know that there's something special about that rock. It's no ordinary rock. Have you ever cracked open a geode? You take it, and it takes a little bit of work, but if you break it open, what looks like an ordinary, gray, plain old, run-of-the-mill rock, when you break it open, you see that it's got these beautiful crystals on the inside, different colors depending on what the minerals are. Something that looked simple, something that looked maybe even worthless, can actually be very beautiful and has great value. I think that when we come to the scriptures, that the genealogies, like what we just read in Genesis chapter 5, are kind of like a geode. To some people, at first glance, you know, reading something like Genesis chapter 5 or some of the later genealogies, at first glance, it kind of looks boring. It looks plain. It looks simple. There doesn't seem to be much that's of great value to us. And how often do we come to the scriptures saying, what's in this for me? But I think that when we take the time to look closely and to sort of crack this thing open, there's actually something here that's beautiful and something that's valuable. In Genesis chapter 5, we find the family history from Adam to Noah, but this is about more than just historical information. Remember that Moses is writing this book, Genesis, and in the, in the, the next four books after it, he's giving this to the children of Israel so that they would know who their God is, so that they would know who they are, where they came from, so that they would be equipped to worship him and to serve him and to trust him as they enter into the promised land. In this genealogy, we find theological truths that are necessary for those who will love God and trust God and follow God. This genealogy, it shows us a sobering reminder of life in a sin-cursed world. Connects us back to chapter 3 and chapter 4, what we've looked at in previous weeks as, as Adam and Eve's sin spreads throughout all of creation. But we also see here a shining example of living by faith as we wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Remember that in Genesis chapter 3, God promised them that through the offspring of the woman would come one, a hero, who would crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance and salvation to God's people. We see here a shining example of living by faith in this promise. This chapter brings to bear the theological themes that have already been so prevalent in Genesis, sin and death and the curse, but also the good news of grace, the promise, and God's desire for a relationship with us. Chapter 5 opens in verse 1 with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And this is kind of a key uh, dividing marker throughout the book of Genesis, We've already seen it once in chapter 2 as we saw the generations of the heavens and the earth as God tells the story of creation. Now, it says these are the generations of Adam. This is the story of the history of mankind. Remember, like we saw last week, that at this point we've already learned that Cain, the first offspring, has killed Abel. But God had provided another offspring as we saw at the end of chapter 4. Another offspring who would be the bearer of the promise the promise that God would provide a deliverer. Following this sad tale of Cain and Abel and the promising birth of Seth, the question sort of arises, so what's the next chapter in the history of man? What's the next chapter in the history of the world? What is the next step in God's program for his creation? This creation that was once so good, but is now so fallen and so cursed. In God's grace, the story doesn't end with Adam and Eve's sin or even with Cain's sin. 
The story moves forward, and it moves forward by telling us about the generations that flow from Adam through Seth all the way to a man named Noah. This genealogy is unique and that it's not comprehensive. If any of you guys like to do family history, family tree kinds of things, you like to trace out every descendant of a person, and then there's, and typically that tree gets pretty wide pretty fast. This family tree is like a palm tree. Just goes straight down. It's only following one descendant and one offspring from each descendant. Rather than tracing out the full family tree, Moses just traces it through one son. And in this genealogy, what we find, again, he's not just trying to give us history and information. He's trying to teach us truth. We find four truths that not only describe the unfolding history of mankind in Genesis, but four truths that have a lot of implications for us as well. We see, first of all, the ongoing blessing of God. We see the ongoing blessing of God. We see this especially in verses one through four. Moses reminds us that God blessed man in the beginning. He's already told us about creation in chapters one and chapter two, but he goes back to remind us. He says, in, starting in verse one, that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. God creates man in his image, and he blesses man. We're reminded of ongoing blessing. What Moses does is actually say, not only did God bless man in the beginning, but this blessing spread throughout the generations. Though man is fallen and sinful and living under the curse, God's blessing is still present in spite of it all. We see at least three evidences of this blessing. We see it, first of all, in the image of God. I mean, it was a huge blessing for Adam and Eve to have the great privilege of bearing the image of God, that they were made uniquely, different than all creation, with unique honor and dignity, with a capacity for relationship with God and relationship with each other. We know that God's likeness has been distorted by sin. It's been marred. But what we see here in chapter 5 is that it has not been lost. We see that this image of God that Adam and Eve bore was passed on to their children. It says in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Just as God creates man in his own likeness and his own image, this man and this woman procreate together. And the image of God is passed on to their children. What this means is though, that even though we are sinful, we are not subhuman. Though, though we do not reflect the image of God as our first parents did in the garden, it has not been fully lost. God has preserved and blessed and empowered his people here to accomplish in part his original plan of reflecting his image. And we see this original plan also of being fruitful and multiplying that not only is blessing apparent in the fact that they bear the image of God, but we also see offspring. They bear children, children who also bear the image of God. God blesses them, empowers them to accomplish, in part, his original plan. He told them, be fruitful and multiply, and it's happening. This is all a sign of God's blessing. We also see blessing in their long life. None of us know anybody who's over 900 years. But we see here in these early generations extraordinarily long lives. And there's a lot of reasons we could go into as to how or why this was happening. But whatever the cause, whatever the reason, it's a sign of God's blessing. Although sentenced to death because of their sin, this death didn't come immediately. 
God is patient, and he gives them long life so that they can procreate, so that they can, they can bear his image in the world, so that they can be fruitful and multiply. They're allowed a long and fruitful life, even though this life is now painful and difficult. Life under the curse brings sorrow, and it brings suffering, but it's not without any taste of God's blessing. But even though there's ongoing blessing as the human race spreads, perhaps more prominent in this chapter is a second truth, and that's the sobering reality of the curse. We see that in verses 5 through 31. The ongoing curse is evident as we see death reigning. Death reigns over Adam and his descendants. After recounting the life and offspring of Adam, there's a sad refrain that's introduced, and it's going to mark the rest of this chapter. It's going to mark the rest of human history. Hope you caught it as we read. You find it first at the end of Adam's life. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. This phrase becomes part of a formula, a formula that's repeated throughout this genealogy. Eight times we hear this abrupt and final ending, and he died. The sad truth is that the image of God flickers, and it goes out. That the breath of life that God has breathed into man and woman created in his image is taken away. Even the most fruitful and even the most long-lived eventually meets death. All their stories end the same. Now this is as God said it would be. God had promised them, if you eat of the fruit, what? You guys tell me. What will happen if you eat the fruit, kids? You will surely die. You will surely die. Now Satan had denied it. You won't surely die. Adam and Eve did not believe it. They doubted God's word. But the unfolding of history leaves no doubt that God was speaking the truth. Just as he said, though it didn't happen immediately in a physical sense, eventually they did die. Not only does this vindicate God's word in the garden, but it also makes clear that no effort of man can escape this final destination. It's the same for us today. Death comes for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're well-educated or if you barely made it through high school. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how much people like you. All of our stories end the same. Chapter 4 tells us of great advances in culture, human innovation. We see that Lamech, one of the descendants of Cain, took two wives in verse 19. The name of one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. And look at what his sons accomplished. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Boom. The birth of economy. Livestock was the currency of the day. We see his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. We see innovation. We see art. We see music. We see beauty. Human innovation. We see that Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Remember all those elements that were so plentiful in the place God had created? Man is taking those elements and figuring out how to, how to melt them down and shape them and fashion them. This is the birth of technology. I mean, it didn't start off as an iPhone. It started off probably as plows, harnesses, tools. But technology has not stopped growing ever since. We see that mankind is able, by God's grace, to bring about many innovations that make life under the curse easier, that improve our, our experience, 
Advances in society help with all these things, but none of that can deliver us from death. We were talking last night after the wedding about, Gabe was telling me, I'll probably botch it if I try to recap it, but I mean, how scientists today are able to get into DNA and interact with the data of, of what we're made of at that kind of a level, that's amazing, the science that we have. It's amazing what can be done, but we still can't stop death. Nothing in our power can deliver us from death. And it's been that way, not just in chapter five of Genesis, it's been that way every generation since. As Kent Hughes writes, vast multitudes of people have been born bearing the image of God, originals all, so beautiful, so full of potential, but they have all been plowed under. The rains have washed their names from the tombstones. Their bones are no more. We all know the cycle, don't we? We rejoice in the birth of a baby. We celebrate that. We also weep as we bury those we love and we feel the sting of death and loss. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Genesis chapter 5 is a sobering reminder of the reign of death, the ongoing curse. Even the unbelieving world knows the cynical proverb that there's only two constants in the world, death and taxes. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that this is true. But just as we're settling into this sad and familiar cycle, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, we get to the seventh generation, and this genealogy takes a surprising turn. The third truth that emerges is that there is a marvelous exception to this pattern of death, that there is rescue from death through relationship with God. We see this in the amazing story of Enoch. And, if, and that's why I wanted to read this whole text out loud for you, even though it might seem monotonous, because you get to Enoch, and all of a sudden you go, whoa, something's different about this. This familiar refrain has been broken up. We see in verse 18 that when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters who were not named Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Okay, more of the same. And then verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Okay, and then it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But instead of the familiar refrain, and he died, it simply says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The familiar formula gets shaken up. Instead of noting how many years Enoch lived, Moses points out that he walked with God. It's interesting, if, if you kind of build a familiar pattern here, instead of noting that Enoch lived, it says Enoch walked with God. For him, walking with God was life. This was life for him. When I, when I was a kid, I, I loved playing sports, baseball and basketball. Some of the kids had these shirts, said ball is life, and they'd have a baseball or a football or a basketball. For Enoch, walking with God was life. He didn't just walk after God. He didn't just walk before God. He walked with God. There's an amazing intimacy to this language here. This is a relationship between Enoch and his God. He walked with him. We see here that God is pleased 
by this. He's pleased by the faith of Enoch because we see that God took him. We might ask the question, where did God take Enoch to? The text doesn't say. But it's implied here that his relationship with God is not halted by him being taken. It's rather enhanced. Enoch gets promoted and he gets to continue walking with God face to face in his presence. Enoch goes to be with God because on earth he walked with God. This highlights an important truth for us. One that was made clear in the creation account that being made in the image of God means that we are made with a capacity for relationship with him. No other being in creation can have a relationship with God, but you can and I can. But more than just being made with a capacity for relationship with God, this shows us that we are made for the explicit purpose of relationship with God. That's why you exist. That's why you're designed the way that you're designed. So that you could have a relationship with God. This is what God designed us for. And get this, this is what God desires. He desires relationship with the people that he's created in his image. And the amazing good news is that even in a sinful and fallen world, that relationship with God is possible. It's possible for us outside the garden to walk with God. This is grace. And it's not just a privilege in this life. Walking with God gives those under the curse of death a cause for hope. Enoch actually escaped death. How? Not through technology, not through art, not through economy, not through his own strength, but through relationship with God. Not only does the the reference to Enoch here break up the rhythm of this genealogy, it's also a sharp contrast to the line of Cain. I mentioned earlier that Enoch is the seventh generation. If we jump back over to chapter four, you know who was the seventh one through Cain's line? It was Lamech. Contrast Enoch with Lamech. Remember, Lamech is the one who takes two wives. He reaches for what's not his to increase his power and his influence. Lamech is the one who kills a young man for something small and then brags about it. He celebrates violence. He brags upon himself. What a contrast. What a contrast. In the line of Cain, we find pride and rebellion and violence. But in the line of Seth, we find humility and faith and communion with God. This shocking exception in the life of Enoch gives us a spark of hope that through a relationship with God, the curse of death can be escaped. But as we keep reading, we see that this was just for Enoch. I mean, after Enoch, it resumes that same pattern that Methuselah dies. And then Lamech, the son of Methuselah, this is a different Lamech, he as well dies. Death continues on. This was a unique experience for one extraordinary individual. He wasn't the only one, I'm sure, who believed in God. We see at the end of chapter four that Seth's descendants were calling upon the name of the Lord. So there were other people, but there's something unique and and, and extraordinary about his walk And I think that God also was doing this for Enoch, not just for Enoch's benefit, but as a sign to offer hope to others that through relationship with God, death can be escaped. But again, it picks back up again, this this refrain of death. But even though the death, the cycle of death continues after Enoch, hope is now alive. Hope is alive. And we see a hope for the future. Number four, hope for the future in the birth and the naming of Noah. Lamech, verse 28, again, a different Lamech than the one who was descended from Cain. 
Lamech had lived 182 years, and he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, this is a different Lamech than the one we find in chapter 4. This is the father of Noah. Now, again, we find something different about this part of the, of the genealogy. None of the other names are explained for us. None of the other names are interpreted. But the name of Noah is explained here. Noah's name has a meaning. There's significance. The Hebrew word Noah, his name, actually, it shares some similarities with the Hebrew word for comfort. And that's why Lamech says that he will bring us relief. Relief from what? From our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Life under the curse is difficult. Remember, God had cursed the ground. Everything now in life for them, survival is like pushing a rock uphill. Everything's hard. And they're longing for relief from this. And he names his son Noah in faith, trusting that God will fulfill the promise. Lamech here is speaking in part prophetically. God was going to bring through Noah a kind of deliverance. But he's also, I think, speaking this name over his son in part as a prayer of hope. I think there's a longing here in Lamech, knowing what God had promised and saying, God, we need this. We need this. Provide. Keep your promises. Lamech is expressing the longing of mankind for relief from life under the curse. The promise was known That God would provide redemption through his chosen offspring. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there'd been a lot of longing. Remember, Eve had thought that perhaps Cain would be the one. She says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Maybe he will be the one. But Cain had killed his brother. He basically lost two sons at once. She later hoped that Seth would be the one to fulfill the promise. When Seth was born, she says, that God has provided another offspring. Maybe he'll be the one to bear the promise. But generations had come and gone, and still the deliverer had not come. Lamech looks to Noah and hopes that he will be the one. Little does Lamech know that Noah will be a deliverer of sorts, but probably not in the way that Lamech imagines. Through Noah, God will preserve the human race from extinction, and he'll keep the line of Seth, the line of promise, alive. The genealogy of Jesus, when we get to the New Testament, will be traced back eventually to the family of Noah and to his son Shem. But it's Jesus, not Noah, who will be the ultimate deliverer. Just as rescue from the flood will only be found in the ark, redemption from sin and death and the curse can only be found through the cross. Noah is not the snake crusher, but his birth signals that God's ongoing faithfulness to preserve the promise is alive and well. And it also shows us that in each generation that came, faith was alive, faith in the promise of God. I think a lot of us this morning probably know how Lamech feels. We long for relief from the curse. Our work is hard. Life is difficult. There's sorrow. There's grief. There's turmoil. Here in Genesis 5, we find hope. In the life of Enoch and in the naming of Noah, I think there's instruction for us today. We too can find rescue from death. We too can find relief from the curse. You know, it's amazing as we keep reading this story, we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, these two themes of rescue from death and relief from the curse, these two themes converge in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. Hoping in the promise for us means trusting in Jesus. And walking with God for you and me means following Jesus. Just two points of application this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, we today find rescue from death through relationship with Christ. For us, walking with God means a relationship with Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this. Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Walking with God means walking after Jesus. In the New Testament, you know what we find? We find God coming to us. Jesus walks among men. The Son of God dwells with us, and he invites us to walk with him. It's amazing as you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always on the move, isn't he? He's going to Galilee. He's going to Samaria. He's going to Capernaum. He's going to Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, those who know him, those who have a relationship with him, what are they doing? They're walking with him. They're following after him. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's one who walks with him. To have a relationship with God means nothing less than discipleship, following after Christ. If you say this morning, okay, if walking with God is what I'm made for, if walking with God is what pleases him, if walking with God is the only way to be rescued from death, how do I do that? It's very simple. Jesus says, follow me. Come after me. Trust in me. Walk with me. The call to life, the call to salvation, is a call to discipleship. And what this is going to require, it's going to require turning from our own way to go his way. To walk with God means you're going where he's going. You're aimed where he's aimed. You're making progress in a certain direction. That might mean that you need to change directions from where you've been going because you've been out of step with Jesus. It means that we need to trust that where he leads is best. It's no accident that, that Solomon writes in Proverbs that real wisdom is, is not trusting in ourselves. It's not leaning on our own understanding. It's acknowledging him in all our ways, and he directs our paths. He makes our way straight. That's wisdom. Simply put, to follow Jesus requires an ongoing expression of both repentance, turning from our way, and faith, trusting in him, trusting that he's the one who can save. The book of Hebrews tells us that faith is actually what sets Enoch apart from the rest. Hebrews 11:5 says, "By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him." Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, whoever would walk with him, whoever would be in relationship with him. The author writes, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have relationship with God through faith in Christ. Now, we come to Christ initially for salvation. That requires repentance and faith. But I want you to hear me this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, we have to understand that repentance and faith must mark our ongoing lives. A Christian is one who never stops repenting, who never stops turning. A Christian is one who never stops trusting, who never stops believing. 
Repentance and faith are ongoing marks of genuine salvation. That's why we find these kind of instructions littered throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Walking just means life. That's how we live. We are to live in a way that is in step with and dependent on Jesus Christ. He says, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This has some major implications for you and me as Christians. If we want to grow as disciples, here's what this means. Here's what this means for you and me. We cannot reduce faith, the Christian faith, to merely intellectual belief. Walking with God means a lot more than just believing the right things. Now, I don't want to undercut the importance of doctrine. If you've been around our church, you know here that we take, we take doctrine seriously. We spent half of this calendar year preaching through our statement of faith. So we place a high value on right doctrine. And I'm not apologizing for that at all. But we cannot reduce the Christian faith to merely having the right doctrine. Because that's all in our heads. The reality is you can believe all the right things about God and not be walking with him. The reality is you can get it all right on paper and be far from him when it comes to your daily life. James warns us. He says, you believe that God is one. You have the right doctrine about God. He says, good job. You do well. Kind of sarcastically pats us on the head. And then he says, even the demons believe that. And they tremble. They fear God in the sense that they know who he is. And they take him seriously. And they have the right doctrine but they are far from him. They're not walking with him. They're in rebellion against him. Guys, if you believe the right things about God, if you believe that he exists, that's necessary, that's step one, but that is less than what is required for genuine salvation. And it's less than what's required for discipleship, for following Jesus. We cannot reduce the Christian faith to something that's merely intellectual. The New Testament description of faith is deeply personal. Even in the metaphor of the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and we take the cup, I mean, what is that metaphor? That we are taking Christ into us. The New Testament speaks of us being in Christ and him being in us. That is intensely personal. It's not just merely having the right doctrine. We cannot reduce Christianity, the Christian faith, to merely something that happens in our mind. But secondly, we also cannot reduce Christianity to merely following a code of conduct. Though some of us might kind of fall into one ditch saying, well, I'm just gonna make sure I have all the right doctrines. Some of us, our, our approach to, the, to Christian life is, you know what, I'm just gonna try really, really hard to do all the right things. And that's good, we should seek to obey. But did you know it's possible for you to try to conform your life to a certain code of conduct, but actually have your heart the inner part of you, be far from God. And that's what the Pharisees were. They had a rigorous external lifestyle, rigorous adherence to the law, rigorous, rigorous study of the law. They sat around all day discussing scripture. But what did Jesus condemn them for? Their hearts were far from him. To walk with God means relationship. And if you just try to do the right things on the outside, but there is no inner communion with God, that's not what God desires from you. That's not what an authentic walk with God looks like. You see, Christ demands not just our minds. He demands our hearts and our wills. He demands not just our obedience, but also our love. God wants not just our cooperation. God wants communion with you and with me. We were made for this. 
And friends, when we look at the Christian faith this way, that God desires relationship with us, that we not only believe that he exists, but that we also diligently seek him, there's that inner relational heart. When we have that approach to the Christian life, you know what happens? Reading your Bible in the morning or spending time in prayer or gathering to worship with the church or meditating on the truths of God, those don't just become duties, just simple habits we do because I guess I'm supposed to, because I ought to. No, they become more than that. They become life. For Enoch, walking with God was life. When you and I have this kind of relationship with God, where we believe that he exists and we diligently seek him, we're walking with him, communing with him, listening to him, speaking to him, in step with him, when we dwell with him that way, this is life. It's life for us. So the question is, does this describe you? Are you someone who walks with God? I know a lot of you have some good doctrine. I'm thankful for that. It's necessary. I know a lot of you are very faithful to do a lot of good things. And praise God for that. It's necessary. But if that's all there is, it's not enough. God desires that we walk with him. There's a spiritual intimacy that God has designed us for, that he desires with us. So let's not reduce faith and discipleship to anything less. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, I hope what you're hearing me say is not that you need to just start believing some right things in your head, although that's part of it, that's one step. And I'm not even just saying that you need to change your life and stop sinning so much, although that is part of it, it's necessary fruit of genuine faith. I'm inviting you to come this morning and to trust in Jesus, to repent of your sin, to turn towards him and start walking with him in dependence in communion with him. That's gonna require believing the right things and it's going to result in you doing the right things, but that's going to be driven by an inner intimacy, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a walk with God. It's God's desire for us. There's a second application for us this morning. Not only do we find rescue from, from death through relationship with Christ, it's through trusting in him in this way that we are truly saved, but we also find relief from the curse through the work of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Isn't rest, comfort and relief, isn't that what Lamech was hoping for? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. When we come to Jesus for salvation, when we enter into this relationship with him, he promises to raise us up from the dead. Death can be escaped. But what happens in the meanwhile? What happens while we wait for that future day when the resurrection happens? God offers us rest. Not even just the ultimate rest. One day we'll experience rest in a new creation, right? After the resurrection, when the curse is done away with, when the enemies of God are defeated, there's no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more death. We will rest. There's an eternal rest, Hebrews 4 says. There remains for us a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We have that to look forward to, but we also have peace now. We also have a measure of rest now. Through the work of Christ, we can have comfort. What is this relief that you and I can enjoy now? We don't have to be afraid of death. That's a comfort, isn't it? That's why the Apostle Paul encourages New Testament believers that when we go to a funeral, we weep and we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Our grief is different. 
Our grief is different. We have rest in the sense that the fear of death has been removed. We have comfort in the sense that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. You know what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit? He calls him the comforter. The comforter. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll send the comforter who will be with you. Second Corinthians, it says that God is the God of all comfort. And he comforts us. And part of the reason he does that is not just to meet our need, but he comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. God is a God of comfort. Lamech was hoping for that. He was waiting for that. Jesus comes to bring rest and to bring comfort, ultimate rest, and even comfort, a measure of comfort and rest now. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. The fear of death has been removed. Our consciences that condemn us from our sin, we look to Christ. We have relief from the sting of conviction. Because Jesus said it is finished, paid in full. So when the accuser comes and he tells us you're guilty, you're vile, you're a sinner, we say that's true, but Jesus died for me. And we have comfort from the weight and the burden of shame and guilt and conviction. Christ provides all that for us. We have comfort and relief from the demands of the law. The law says you must obey, you must perform, you must keep all of God's demands. And that demand actually hasn't gone away. But you know what's happened? Jesus steps in and goes, I will keep the law for you on your behalf. That means you and I have relief, rest, comfort from the demands of the law, all because of what Jesus has done. And even though we still face physical death, we know that death is not final. There's resurrection coming. You know, we look at what happened to Enoch and we say, that's miraculous. But you know what? I think those ancient saints... They would have been amazed to hear this miraculous promise that you and I have, that one day we will be resurrected, glorified, and that our bodies will be made perfect. I think they would have rejoiced to hear that good news. They didn't have those details. We do. We have hope of a resurrection. We have hope that Christ has overcome death and he has brought eternal life to all who believe. Those who live by faith, like Enoch did, have hope of eternal rest, that one day we'll be taken into God's presence. Perhaps we'll be, be grabbed just like Enoch was. Perhaps it'll be the rapture, that moment where Christ calls his people and he gathers them up into the air. Perhaps we will face death and we'll hear the trumpet and be raised to life. But in either way, death will not be the end of the story for those who walk with God in this life, who have faith. And we have the Spirit's presence with us now as a comfort, as a down payment and a guarantee that that final rest is coming. As we read Genesis chapter five, what at first looks like a geode, dusty, nothing special about it. Okay, let's skip through this and get to something that's practical. As we crack it open and see some of the truths that are here, especially as we read this genealogy in light of the rest of the story, it becomes clear that there's good news for people like you and me who live under the curse. Although we and creation itself groan as we await final redemption, there is hope that we can be rescued from death through faith in Christ. That we can find relief from the curse through the work of Christ. And as we await his return, God's desire for you and me, what we do in the meanwhile, 
is to walk with the Lord, to walk with him, to engage in this intimate spiritual relationship, to walk not by sight, but to walk by faith, anticipating the rest and the rescue that God will one day bring to completion. Father in heaven, as we live still in a sin-cursed world where the refrain of death from Genesis 5 continues all around us, Lord, we are comforted this morning to know that there is rescue through relationship with you. We have hope knowing that you can give us rest and relief from the curse and that one day there will be perfect and eternal rest. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for your grace. We don't deserve your salvation. We are sinners and we deserve the death that we face. But because of your great love and mercy, you've sent Jesus to open the door of salvation. And Lord, we know that this is our only hope. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to you except through him. So Lord, if there's any here this morning who don't know you, Lord, they're facing death. They're facing separation from you. They have no hope. I pray that today they would place their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would repent of their sin and turn from their way and join you and follow you going your way. I pray that they would believe in the promise that you save all who place their faith and trust in Jesus. We ask God that you would encourage those of us today who do know you, that we would find rest and comfort in your promise. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us a hunger to know you more, that we would never settle for merely intellectual faith, that we would never settle for mere external conformity to certain rules. Lord, you tell us that genuine faith is not just to believe that you exist, but also to diligently seek you. Lord, help us to seek you, to walk with you, to enjoy the relationship that you desire to have with us. Pray that you would grow us, make us into faithful followers and disciples of Jesus, all for your glory, and pray this in his name, amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>